So, for those of you who don't know, I own a, two Volvos. Um, they're 93 and a 94. One of them has heat, <laughs> no air conditioning. The other has no heat and no air conditioning. Okay, these are old cars. But one of the things my dad always says about my old cars is that you got to get them out on the freeway to go fast, because you know they're meant to go fast. I would argue with him. My Volvos are not meant to go fast. But I think he says it's good for the engine because, you know, they're German cars, German engineering. My dad loves his Volvos. And and cars, there are a lot of cars that are made to go fast. And they're not made to go in our stop and go. At least older, you know, cars. I don't know about these Priuses and stuff like that, how those work. But cars are meant to go fast, right? Cars are meant to go fast. But I would argue to you that we aren't meant to go fast. We're not meant to go very fast, but we're always going, right? We're easy, or we're busy with life, and this is how life works for a lot of us. Not all of us, but we're busy with life in the sense that we get up in the morning, and we've got to make sure that we eat, we've got to make sure our kids eat, we've got to make sure they get to school, we got to get to work on time, we've got to get them dropped off, we've got to make sure that the dog gets walked and gets fed, and that they're all in their cages and everything's good, and then we get to work, and then there's a whole set of things that we have to get done at work. And for most of us, not all of us at work, but for most of us at work, there's a whole bunch of things that we have to get done that never get done because there's just too many of them. Or we're at home chasing little kids, and for sure nothing ever gets done because they're always doing something. Right? Or we just have tons of ideas and we just can't stop thinking about those ideas. And then we get home and we have to eat and we have to make sure everybody eats and we have to, and then we have to make sure we binge watch the show that we need to binge watch and get to bed on time and get up again. And that kind of is the cycle of our busy life. And that's just one part of it because we're also busy with our pain. Right? We get out of bed and you know, that old football knee hurts us and then our foot hurts us and oh my, you know what, my back is sore today. And, and so we're very busy with our continued pain, our physical pain. If I sat down with each one of you, I could ask you a few questions about your body and you would say, well, this aches and that aches and I've always had this sort of thing in my neck and I've gone to the chiropractor for this and the doctor says I need to do that. Right? We're busy with our pain on top of being busy with everything else. But it's not just our pain and our kind of everyday life. We're also busy with our suffering. Right? We're busy with our suffering. We are people who suffer. Right? All of us. The world is a place of suffering. And and if it's not our our own suffering, it's our friend's suffering that becomes our suffering. Right? We're constantly in this place where we, we, it's about us and it's our suffering and the things, the emotional things that have happened to us and we're busy. And we're going fast when it comes to our suffering. And we're going fast when it comes to our life. And we're going fast when it comes to our physical pain. Like we can tell you like this if some good questions are asked of us. How many of you know who John Cage is? Oh wow, if you actually know who John Cage is. Alright, so... He's this famous composer, um, and he has a piece that he's done for the piano um, that is called Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, right? And it is a piece where he gets up and he says, you can go online on YouTube and look at this, where he sits down at the piano and sits there 
for four minutes and 33 seconds and does nothing. And the sheet music is all rests. And I think it might be three movements. I don't remember. It's been a long time since I have been in music appreciation class. Um, but And the reason he composed this is he wants people to sit there in the uncomfortability of silence. Right? And in fact, John Cage is well known for contemplating and wrestling with the anarchy of silence. Like, that's his big thing. That, like, silence is super disruptive and we don't know what to do with it. And, and we're just always going. Right? So, we're approaching Lent and my job tonight is to just explain that to you as your pastor. And every year we do this. We kind of take a look of here's why we're entering into Lent. And this is why we're doing it. Now, the word Lent, you know, it comes from the word that's for spring. It's Lent is 40 days of fasting and six days of celebrating before Easter. Um, and what you do, what it really is in the church calendar is simply set up so that you have this moment in life where you hit at the beginning of the year where you are beginning the process of preparing for Easter. Okay? You're getting ready to actually have a joy and a and kind of a, a, a an embracing of what God has done in the in the tomb and raising from the dead in a way where you're just intensely focused on it. Now, Lent is not something that God Jesus said, okay, here's what it is. This is how you all have to do it. Now the 40 days is some people believe taken from the fact that Jesus fasted for 40 days before he went out on his ministry. But really, we don't know a lot historically until after the Council of Nicaea as to like what people did when it came to Easter and holy work and fasting and all that kind of stuff. But we do know after that that there was it began to be established as something that the church did on a regular basis. It started out as 36 days. And the reason for that was is that it was this idea of kind of, you know, God calls us to give 10% of our income, right? There's a, when you talk about giving, there's a, a call for that. Well, the idea was that you would give 10% of your time at the beginning of the year. That's first fruits. It's a, it's a, it's a giving of your time. For me, Lent has been a time of reorientation because I am a busy person. And when I say you are busy with your life and with your pain and with your suffering, I'm talking about me as much as I'm talking about you. Like, I'm busy with these things. And I have found that the older I get, that I need something, I need a community that says, time to stop. It's time to refocus. It's time to be silent. It's time to be still. Now in the Psalms, the ancient Hebrew songwriters use this word all the time. They call us to be still. And for me, that's what Lent is. It is the call of God to me and to my community to be still. To be still. And so tonight, what I was going to do was look at the cross of Jesus. And I was going to look at all the words that He says to people. But... That was my plan before Monday happened. And so tonight I'd rather look at Lent from the perspective of Psalm 46, which is my favorite 
psalm. So if you have a black Bible, you can turn to page 559. We're going to look at Psalm 46. Now, you know, JJ, which is my nephew's name, passed away at seven weeks. Right before that, Hannah and Steve's daughter, Miriam, like as I talked about last week, and most of you know in the community, she's fine one day, and then she has a tumor, and then she's in surgery, and now she's headed into some kind of chemo. That whole, that happened. Still my nephew, that happened. Um, a few, a month and a half earlier, I believe, Juliet, little three-year-old here in the community, Chelsea's daughter and Dylan's, got attacked by a dog, was in the emergency room, and that was super traumatic. And those are just immediate things, suffering that have happened in our community, things that, that make it difficult to stop and be still. But we're a little community, right? Soaking wet, maybe on a good day. All our kids were 115 people or so. So in that, when we have loss as people, we, we know it, right? Just a few years ago, Bill, who was somebody we, we all dearly loved, who was loud, boisterous and welcomed everybody and you will never miss Bill, right? Bill was Bill, like you can't miss him. Uh, for those of you who knew him, passed away. And a few years before that, Sean, you know, I was just reflecting his last service here when we all prayed over him and he passed away and he left us with Samantha and four little kids under the age of six to care for. Like these are, and, and it's not unique to us, right? But that's that's suffering. And so as we head into Lent, I head into it with a really heavy heart. As I sit with my brother and, and Blanca and they wrestle with losing their kid and Miriam and it, it seems like a lot. It seems like a lot to wrestle with. So I'll, as we talk about Lent, I want to intertwine Psalm 46 into it. So we'll start at the beginning. Psalm 26 goes this way. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, into the heart of the sea. Though the waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. Selah means stop. Think about it. Take a minute to wrestle with this. Now, I like Psalm 46 because it's a plural. It's not talking about just the songwriter's struggle. It's talking about all of our struggle. Right? And the thing that it starts out with, it says that God is our refuge and our strength. And that refuge word kind of means God is the person that we actually run to. So you could read, God is the one that we run to, and God is, and God's strength is what we rely on. That's one way of translating it. So the writer starts out saying, we run to God, it's God's strength, and then he says that God is an ever-present help in trouble. He does not say that God shows up and fixes everything. He doesn't say that he makes everything better. Now he says that God is an ever-present help in trouble, meaning God is standing with you in the midst of his tr- of your trouble. 
And then he begins to describe, the writer describes this trouble. And the trouble is the shaking and moving of the earth and the water. Now, I don't know, how many of you have been in an earthquake of any form? Right? I've been in a little tiny one. I was sleeping in a hotel in California, and I was then dreaming that I was in a boat. And then these fire alarms started going off. And I kind of staggered up, and I was trying to like, because, you know, the hotel is going like this, back and forth. And there is nothing that you can do to make it stop. Like, I can't, like, you know, rest my hands on the floor and say, all right, floor, stop. Like, it's just back and forth, back and forth. It's the weirdest feeling. It, It is like the most tangible way of feeling out of control when the earth itself is moving back and forth under you. The writer is saying that in the midst of things happening that you have no control over, God is present. In the midst of when you have no control over things, God is your refuge. It's the one you will run to. When you, when nothing seems to be working the way you want it to, God is your strength. We'll go on a little bit, and I want to illustrate that, and we'll get to kind of how that fleshes out in a practical way. But the writer is saying, as you face things that move back and forth, and you try to understand things that are going on in your life, God is your refuge and strength, and He doesn't leave. He's ever-present. It moves on. It says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts His voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Now for the Hebrew, he's talking about Jerusalem. For the Hebrew, he's talking about the temple. He's talking about the place where everybody is kind of crowded in. It's the place where God is. Now here's, here's the interesting thing about this. is For the Hebrew person, their place of refuge, the place that they're going to run to is the city of God. God's going to defend his city. That's what they have in their head. But for you and I, yes, there is a city of God in Revelation and there's all that talks about, but the thing that you and I are running to when we talk about God as a refuge and God as a strength and God being present is it's God himself is the city. Okay. And so when things are crazy, right, the thing that you and I are resting in is God. And the help that God is bringing is a defense of his refuge or his tower, a defense of his strength, and a defense of his presence. So when chaos comes pushing on us, the thing that God is going to stand for and the thing that God is going to keep present is himself, his strength, and his refuge. That's what he's going to push out against. That's what his voice is going to melt when the attack comes on that, on God's strength, on God's presence, and on God's refuge. Now, the other kind of thing that's happening here is that they're kind of talking about political unrest, right? That there's a conflict, there's war. 
And we, at this very moment, are sitting in an election year, right? And so if I were to bring up some names like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, right, or Clinton or Ted Cruz, we could go on down the line. Those things for us create a certain amount of emotion, right? You say Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump, and man, people are like, right, you feel like there's something going on there, right? But what's what you and I... If it's the earth that we're not in control of or what it seems to be a people with evil intent trying to push against us. What the psalmist says is that God is mighty and that he's our fortress. That what he's going to provide and protect is his refuge, his strength, and his presence. But it doesn't always feel that way. And so the writer continues to kind of offer a way of understanding that. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolation He has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. We'll get to the next line in just a minute. What the writer says is, as you sit in the city, as you wrestle with, what does it actually mean for God to be present in my trouble? What does it mean for God to be strength and a refuge to me, the writer says, you must begin to come and see what God has done. See what He's done. See how He has reacted to those who push against His strength and His presence and His refuge. For me to understand the meaning and the purpose and to even be in a process of mourning my nephew or to sit with my brother and sister-in-law, Sanka and Joel. I need to know what God has done. And so I just want to stop and tell you just a little bit because for me it means a lot in helping me understand what it means to mourn my little nephew. You see, like 13 years ago, um, Russ, who's the guy who took out the, the kid's Big beard, usually plays the drums. Um, he and Blanca worked at IBM. And Blanca was dating this other guy named Dan, who wasn't a Christian. Um, and, Blanca, and Russ asked him to come to the village. And Dan was kind of desperate. He had this girl, and he was pretty sure she needed Jesus. But he wasn't really a follower of Jesus. So he brought Blanca and himself to the village. And they came for a couple months, and this was the beginning of the village. And you can go back and listen to this on our website, because we document everything. So you can go dig down into the sermons way, way back 13 years ago. You can always find out what kind of theology I had back then too. Um, but there's this moment, I think we're going through Samuel, I think it is, um, where we had a time often in responding to the sermon. And Blanca stood up and she said, you know, I have nothing to say about the sermon, but you know how you guys keep saying that you don't go take communion if you can't stand with the broken body and the blood poured out for you? If you don't think Jesus is God, don't do this. Well, I think I believe that Jesus is God and I'm going to take communion tonight. Which, you know, in a, it was a tiny little church where there's just like this dead silence, you know, because all those people are praying for Blanca. 
And my brother wasn't in the scene at the time. So she became a Christian at the village. My brother started coming to the village. We, many of you who've been around for a while at the village, which would be about half of you, like, you know, you saw that romance, the ups and the downs of that romance. Um, but then they had a very epic wedding. It was an epic wedding for our church. It was huge. There was dancing. In fact, I think there's a video of Rod and I dancing, which is a little weird. There was a goat. And Steve and Hannah, there were goats, pictures with goats. I mean, who has a goat at a wedding? There was no dancing goats. But, but there was a goat. And, and to know Blanca's story and to know all the things that Blanca wrestled with, you know, like me telling her, you know, in the summer because she wasn't safe that I was taking her car from her. And she was like, oh, okay, here's your keys. And I got to drive a convertible around for the summer. Like just, just all these crazy things about what God has done in her life. And marry my brother. And to see like the five beautiful children, you know, now four that are alive, are just gorgeous. And to see this family that loves Jesus. And, you know, they don't come to the village anymore because partly, you know, the Sepins are pretty hot-headed and it's a little hard to have your brother as your pastor. So, they're at Second Mile, which is fine with me. I love that church. I love their pastor. I love what God's doing there. Um, but it's, it's just, it's so cool. So in the midst of that, this wonderful story where God has kept the enemy so many times at bay in Blanca's life. To now see her sit with this stack of cards of verses that she was praying over her son when he was alive. And now writing on the back of it, just telling me, Eric, I just have to write down more verses to remember that God loves me. It's not the same Blanca. Like God has done an amazing thing in her. And so for me, in the midst of all of that, I have to remember what God has done, the way he has claimed somebody and called them out of darkness and cared for them and laid waste to things that are evil. And then there's this line that we are going to sing a lot tonight. The line in verse 10, after all that, the psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The psalmist says, Be still and know that I am God. And one way you can translate be still is cause yourself to let go or cause yourself to become weak. Which sits in contrast in some ways or, or kind of goes along with the beginning. Because see, honestly, the, the thing that I believe about myself, and I know you guys do, is that I need to figure out how to be my refuge. i got to figure out how to make sense of everything. I need to figure out how to be strong. I need to figure out how to be present. And what the psalmist says is, no, no, to understand anything, you have to let go and become weak. You have to stop. You have to surrender to know God. You have to hold those busy things 
your weeks, your days, your children, your pain, your suffering in an open hand. You have to let go. And become weak. In order to know who God is. Now, in Matthew chapter 16, God asks a very interesting thing, or Jesus asks a very interesting thing of his disciples. In a place where he's predicting his death, he says to his disciples, then Jesus, this is chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 24, then Jesus said to the disciple, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Lent, the reorienting, the letting go of my busyness, the, my narrowed focus on my own suffering, pain, and busyness, I think has to start at the cross. For me to get to a place where I am ready to sing for joy when I celebrate Easter and the resurrection of Jesus, for me to have Easter not just be a small blip on my year, but to have Easter be something that thrusts me into the year in a way where I'm ready to take up my cross and follow Jesus, where I'm ready to, to mourn in a way that connects me to God and helps me let go and to celebrate then I have to begin at the cross. And for me, Lent puts me dead center at the cross. And it begins to do some things to me. And so I want to I wanna read to you Luke chapter um, 23, I believe. And I want you to think about the people in Luke chapter 23, verse 33, that are at the foot of the cross. Because I want you to think about what they're saying and who they are because they are you and me. Verse 33, chapter 23 of Luke. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, that would be Jesus, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watch, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me 
in paradise. Lent is about standing with all these people. Lent is about coming to the cross and being reoriented. Because when I hold on tightly to my busyness, when I hold on tightly to my pain and my suffering, I begin to become these people. I begin to, to, to be angry at what God has done, and, and, I, and I mock the cross, and I mock Him. But you know, it's easy for us to say, no, that's not really me. No, that really is you. Part of Lent is a stopping and saying, you've been going and you've been going and it's time to stop and reorient yourself in order that you can pick up your cross again, in order for you to celebrate Easter in a way that has a lasting impact, to taste it, to live in it, you have to sit with all these people, with the rulers, with the criminal who throws insults at Jesus. Because you know what the, the refuge is? It's Jesus on the cross. You know what the strength is? It's Jesus on the cross. You know what the ever-present God of the universe is? It's Jesus on the cross. There isn't any resurrection without Jesus dying. There isn't any meaning in any of that without Jesus dying, right? Like, there's no meaning. And yet, there's that criminal on the cross who understands what's going on. And that's where we want to be. The call of Lent is to be the criminal on the cross who says, I deserve to be here. But this man does not deserve. I put him here. Lent is a place of reorienting us and saying, the only way that we can let go, the only way we can be still, is to realize that we put Christ on the cross. Now, the reason I think that's so important is that Easter is awesome. Right? Easter is... JJ has no meaning. Suffering has no meaning without the resurrection. If the God of the universe isn't going to put death to rights, if the God of the universe isn't going to do something about all of this crap in the world, then there is no meaning. Life is stupid without it. I have no hope without the empty tomb, without the resurrection. And the thing that gets me excited about the resurrection is the way that Psalm 133, which we went over last year, I just want to read to you, explains, gives us a picture of what it will be like for us to be in the kingdom of God. What it will be like for us to have all things made new. The psalmist David says this in Psalm 133. He says, How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. In this psalm, God links the unity of brotherhood, the beauty of being anointed as a priest with everlasting life, that there's this deep refreshment 
I was sitting with Joel, my brother, and my youngest brother, Wes, who's in town now, and Blanca. We were just talking, and I was saying, you know, in the kingdom of God, I deeply believe that you will chase your son, full-grown, whatever, down the park, and you will laugh, and you will get to know his full glory. And that there will be this beautiful unity and love and experience of just peace that you're going to get to have in the midst of that. And it gets me excited. It's hopeful. Now, let me talk about Lent just a little practically. Because to get started with putting yourself at the cross and letting go, you have to create some space in your life. So the reason that Lent is about fasting is because, and the reason you fast food, and you don't have to fast food, in fact, I would suggest that you don't fast food, because fasting food and don't go to fast food. Every time I say this and talk about it, there's just like, whatever. Okay. Um, is it food takes a long time to prepare? There were no things like gas ovens, microwaves. You didn't have any hot pockets. There was none of that kind of thing going on, right? There was no fast food. Food was slow. So if you fasted a meal, you weren't like fasting half an hour or an hour of prep and that's a lot. You know, you're not using your microwave much. Um, it took all day, and you probably only had one meal, you know, that was of any substance. And so if you took that out, you had a lot of time. So for you and I, I would like to just make a suggestion that you look at your life and say, okay, what's going to create some time space for me? What's going to remove, like, something that will then open up time? So for me, like almost every Lent, I get rid of some form of electronics because it provides me with a lot of space because I have learned that because I'm a kid of the digital age, I like my electronics, I like my TVs, I like my phones, I like my computers. So to push those aside provides space. right? And so I would suggest that you add something into that space that connects you to God. Okay, Maybe it's just reading some scripture. Maybe it's spending some time praying. Maybe it's just taking a 10-minute walk and talking to God or enjoying nature. Maybe it's just sitting for a while and reading Luke 23 every day and contemplating and thinking and imagining that time when Jesus was on the cross. All those things are there to get you prepared to celebrate Easter. And to get you, and if you're at a place where you can have opened your, your, your hands to suffering and open your hands to your pain and open your hand to your busyness and, and surrender to that, and you're willing to be still to deal with the chaos of the silence, I guarantee you that Easter will be super exciting. I guarantee you that once you focus so much on the cross, you're relieved that Jesus rose from the dead. You truly understand this, begin to understand the significance of that. So that's my invitation. In the midst of suffering, in the midst of the things that we're wrestling with as a community and as individuals, I think Lent is a is a good opportunity for us to sit at the cross and learn what that means to be our refuge and our strength. So let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this community. Thank you for the way they love me and us and the way you've connected all of us. I just ask that as we sing and as we eat together, that you would bless that time um, 
and that we would taste deeply of your peace in our hearts. And I ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.